Welcome to Episode 7 of the RiskCast, the official talk radio program of the Risk Management Monitor blog, which is the official blog of Risk Management Magazine, which is the official magazine of the Risk and Insurance Management Society. My name is Bill Coffin, Publisher and Editorial Director of the magazine, and with me are my usual suspects, Jared Wade. Hello. Morgan work. I like how you use talk radio instead of podcast, so you didn't say cast 67 times. <laughs> Thank you very much. There were a lot of officials in there, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there wow. were officials, but that was on purpose. That was, that was by design. And last but not least... Emily Holbrook. Hello. Excellent. Well, we have a lot of stuff uh, we're going to talk about today, so let's just jump right into it. Emily, what story have you brought to the table? Uh, I want to talk about the um, explosion in the mine in West Virginia that killed 25 people. Uh, I blogged about this, actually, this morning, uh, so you can check it out there, too. Um, Found out that Massey Energy, the company that owns the mine, uh, did not have business interruption insurance, and I think that's a huge mistake in an industry that has so many... You know, different disasters. Yeah, disasters <laughs> happen to it. I mean, this is yeah. mines. This things happen to mines all the time, and they they opted out of uh, business interruption insurance. So they're in a. Oh, they opted out of it. Yeah. So they had it at one point and just then decided I to go without coverage. I think they had it in the past, and in their annual report, it said you know they have like workers' comp and all that stuff, but they say that they did not opt to take the uh, business interruption insurance. So they've got that against them. They've got all the workers' comp liabilities that you know, are against them right now. And, of course, lawsuits right. that will be filed by the victims' families. I'm so sure. now, did these guys have a history of OSHA violation? I mean, Yeah, uh, they had a, a oh, ton yeah. of violations. <laughs> um, I actually quoted something from the uh, New York Times that said uh, that Massey is certainly one of the worst in the industry. Uh, and he was, this guy was talking about, you know, in terms of safety violations. Yeah. Um, the Massey record is without a doubt one of the most difficult uh, in the industry. From a safety standpoint. Um, and I also talked in the blog about Don Blankenship, the Massey CEO. Yeah. Um, he's one heck of a guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do not use foul words. He sent out a memo, actually. Uh, it was dated October 19, 2005, to all deep mine superintendents. This is terrible. Yeah. And this is uh, word for word. It says, if you, have any, if you have been asked by your group presidents, your supervisors, engineers or anyone else to do anything other than run coal, i.e. build overcasts, do construction jobs, or whatever. You need to ignore them and run coal. This memo this memo is necessary only because we seem not to understand that coal pays the bills. Um, and overcasts are um, needed for proper ventilation in the mine. Wow. So in other words, just keep working, and if they fall over, step over their body and yeah. make sure you get that coal up. Yes. <laughs> He you know, a lot of the violations they had received were about safety issues, mm-hmm. um, right. things like that. And he, so I think they were just starting to focus on that a little more. And, you know, people were saying, no, we need to be sa- more safe in the company. And he was like, no, no, we don't. We need to run coal. <laughs> we need to we run need coal. To make money. Safety doesn't yes. pay the bills. Yeah. Coal pays Although the bills. It seems, it seems kind of like, I mean, then, it's, then to not get business interruption insurance stuff, your whole thing is based on the do- on money. 
that seems like a weird place to go. Well, if we have a disaster and we're a part of an industry that has quite a few of them, let's not worry about that, about the one thing that will keep us going, keep yeah. the profits coming in. I mean, you'd right. think uh, somebody who was like that would cut, like, say, workers' comp because screw their employees by that, yeah. by, that yeah. by that memo's tone. Or it just seems weird that that was the choice. I mean, maybe it's well. To, well, to be honest, I mean, I'm a, I'm a lot more troubled by the tone of that memo than I am by the lack of business oh, yeah. interruption. No, only because agreed. that's it, what I'm saying, though. It's, yeah. You would think that it would be uh, workers' comp that they would have skipped on that <laughs> business interruption. It's it seems like it's just managed by by God knows who. It just doesn't make the Monty sense. Burns of the uh, of the yeah. coal industry. He sent out another memo the next week saying, uh, <laughs> "I think my first memo was construed." Uh, Wrong. I didn't mean that safety came second. Like you just said that in the memo, but I think he got it some heat, so we had to send out another memo trying to take everything back that he said. Well, now, it's already sent out, so. Now I'm guessing that Massey is not a unionized mind. Is that no, he is very much against unions. Aha. Okay. And he's very much um, into politics too, obviously, and. Um, I would he imagine. Ha- he hates I would imagine, regulators. He I would hates environmentalists. Yeah. I'd imagine well, if you're in the coal business in West Virginia, the two, you know, that and, and politics probably go hand in hand. Yeah. Well, wasn't there some story that he got a judge fired? Yes. Uh, the um, West <laughs> he's, Virginia, got some, he's got some pull. Is what West Virginia saying. State Supreme Court judge. Um, he ran. He ra- he put in millions of dollars to have this like horrible advertising campaign run against this judge to have him, you know, thrown out. And the next appointed judge um, threw out like this five billion dollar. Suit against billion Massey. with the B. Yeah, I that's think that's nice. what it was. I don't think it was. I think it was like fifty million or something. Yeah. Hold on, that's like a lot. Regardless, either way, it was he a threw out a large suit. Coin. Yeah, unless you have the actual suit, but still, a fifty million dollar okay. jury verdict. Yeah, you're Jeepers. right. Well, I mean, just just at a cursory glance, the head of this mine, he's. He seems less like a CEO and more like the villain from Roadhouse. Yes. <laughs> he's just, just one of those guys exploiting the town, and then yeah, he's got to wait for like whatever 80s action hero is available to come in and, you know, yeah, exactly, you know, while the mine start, goes on fire. I think that was a Steven Zagal movie. Might have been. An, I think you need Dwayne the Rock Johnson to show up there with a two by four and yeah, he's take care of the mine. Left. I know. Can I state all. a startling fact though? In 2009, the company was fined a total of 382,000 for serious, unrepentant violations lacking. For lacking ventilation and proper equipment plans, as well as failing to utilize its safety plan properly. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. This is this is the problem with OSHA. Do you happen to know what that company's annual revenue may be? Um, I don't know. It's the sixth largest coal company, and it owns 56 mines. Right. Don't so, know. so if you're looking sure at 300, right. almost 400k in fines, mm-hmm. that is yeah. big party for them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean that's that that's not even a slap in the well, wrist. You think I mean, about, I, you know, I, I mean, it's just it's just a ridiculous amount because because there's no way that's really going to put enough hurt on on any company of that size to stop doing what it's doing. I mean, yeah. the regulatory reach there is just not strong enough. Same thing. I mean, you know, we beat Toyota, and we've talked about Toyota quite a bit, but everybody made a big deal about the fact that the uh, government was going to find them a record fine, $16.9 million, I think is what it is. Four. Four, $16.4 million. You know, and the last big fine was – the biggest fine previous was like a million dollars. Yeah. $16.4 million to Toyota, who made, I think, $8 billion last year. I know. $8 billion? That's nothing. So, I mean, while it sounds bad from a PR perspective, it's just like any other fine sort of mm-hmm. has that PR. It's the worst hit. It's not really a financial hit. No, no. I, I mean, don't well, know that it's something that's going to inspire you to all of a sudden go, oh, let me f- yeah. let me fix those the ventilation in the coal mine because it's $300,000. Or worth, fixing yeah. the ventilation, what if it costs $500,000 to, to fix the ventilation? It's like one of those, you know, oh, it's not worth it. I'll pay the fine. Yeah, absolutely. If you're just purely economic, you know, centered. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it, it brings to mind that, that apocryphal story. I think we actually covered it in the podcast at one point where some some business guy in, I guess, what was it, Switzerland, I think, had gotten, had gotten like, the world's heaviest speeding fine because he was racing through some area in his sports car and was, like, doing some you – know, he was doing, like, triple the speed limit or something. But the point is that the law there in that canton was that the speeding ticket – the, the fine of it is commensurate with 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 your salary. So he got hit for like a one point two million dollars speeding oh, ticket, he was, wow. right? Making a lot of money because he's making he's making a huge amount of money. The point is that the point is that the fine is supposed to is supposed to be enough be, be enough be that, that, you, that you feel the sting, you know. And people are like, "Oh, it's ridiculous." But if you look at it from a from a larger perspective, say for worker safety in a mine, you know, the current levels for OSHA are just ridiculous. They're just ridiculous. I mean, they're not. They're, and you know, it's not yeah, like anybody wants a portion OSHA of there. revenue. That would be a pretty, uh, pretty good way to deal with fines. I mean, I don't know. If, well, it seems like a good idea. I read a few things about the Toyota um, fine, and some people were saying, you know, they should just pay that money and move on. You know, because mm-hmm. because they can't appeal a decision and you know try to fight it, and yeah. you know it would. But the guy was suggesting reputationally that wouldn't be worth it for Toyota. No, because it would not. you know why have your name in it. Why have your name in the newspaper for the next six months while you're trying to fight a, what what is just a slap on the wrist fine, essentially, monetarily? Yeah, sure. But then again, if you do just pay it and you don't fight it, then that can kind of um, entice lawsuits because it's almost like an admission yeah, that, yeah. You were, that the fine was valid. So I, I don't know if the same rules apply in this mining instance, but if you know they're going to fight all those fines and try to not to pay them and it, you know make mm-hmm. it go on and on just so they're not admitting guilt type of thing, and then it's almost, yeah. again, like, what what is this really serving? purpose of this fine you know well what would be interesting to see is you know the average wrongful death lawsuit settlement um in the state of west virginia versus say other states just to get a rough idea of how much it would cost to make this whole thing go away once well, we're you probably know, about to find out because i mean yeah, this was no. this is a, ca- a case of a company that has got a history of Guilt, for lack of a better, alleged guilt. If if I have to yeah. be, you know, alleged technical. certainly alleged wrongdoing. Yeah. So I mean, if if there, if there's ever going to be a good test case for yeah. how effective any of that is, this might be it. So Emily, let me ask you a little bit about the disaster itself, because I I didn't I didn't you know really read into it. I just heard that you know there's a, a disaster in the mine. Was there an explosion? Did the mine collapse? I mean, was yeah, there something? Yeah, there was uh, some sort of explosion, but they don't know what triggered the explosion, and I think it might have been um, you know those like train-like vehicles that carry the miners down and take them back up. It might have created a spark that, Mm. uh, because in that mine, probably the levels of the toxic fumes were, you know, too high as usual. I don't know. We're recording this on Friday. As of yesterday, no one could even get down there to. Right. So right. It was just it's the gas was too poisonous. Yeah. And so now, have bodies been recovered, or the bodies still down down below, I and they just sort of um, presumed lost at this point? We covered point. eleven, and they're looking. They still have to get a lot of the other fourteen. Oh really? Yeah, and they're still. Uh, it was four people unaccounted for. Now it's three, and they are hoping that those three are in. Um, you know, they have little rooms that have oxygen actually in them, and food and water. Mm-hmm. You know, like little safety rooms, but. They said there's little hope that they actually made it to these safe rooms. It, hmm. N- now, now, does this does this mine, does this particular mine have a history of similar scale accidents, or is this the first time that that something this bad has happened at this particular it's location? It's the first time something this bad has happened at this particular mine, but um, I think they've had ac- smaller accidents in the past. Yeah, definitely. Do you guys remember the Sago mine explosion? I yeah. do. What yeah. What year was that? Do you remember? So oh. trivia. Uh-oh. Here we go. Always with the you trivia. You only get one guess. <laughs> oh, six. 
<laughs> yes, but you guessed a five first. <laughs> I like that. You only get one guess, so I'm going to guess. You only get Edit that out, Bill. Edit that out. <laughs> to this day, that's actually um, the year with the highest number of uh, fatalities for yeah. the yeah, private mining industry. Yeah, we did a big story on that, or at least a year in wrestling. Yep, 192 yeah. people for the year uh, 2006. That was yeah. in Utah? That's Sago? Uh, yes, I believe it was. But, but if I recall correctly, at the same at, at at roughly the same time, there was another mine disaster up in Canada, I believe. And I remember, and I remember it, we were covering that around the because that year there was a bunch of high profile right. ones. But, but I can't remember. But, but, but the big difference I remember was that with Sago versus this other ones that it was almost like a an alpha and omega way of handling a mine disaster because right. the other one had they had safe rooms down you know down below like what Emily was saying. Uh, you know, and and the guys who were stuck there, they were actually, you know, they're pretty. They had communications. They're okay. They're actually relatively comfortable for being stuck in a cave in. Whereas the Sago guys were, um, they're very much in very dire straits. And the company came off looking very unsympathetic. And they handled the communications of it. I remember rather poorly because the there at one point a false report of deaths. No, of see the the details are eluding me now. But at one point there was a false report of some kind. Either they had all died, or they had been rescued, or something had gotten out to the families and and of course and there was this moment of of terrible realization when they realized that that the situation was still quite quite bad um but yeah Wasego was a was a bad of a mm-hmm. bad disaster and Bill, I just wanted to say I found in my uh, research that between 2000 and 2009 two fatalities occurred at the uh this specific the Massey West Virginia energy. the West Virginia yeah, Massey the, mine mm-hmm. yeah which is kind of average for mines I think well, lest anybody in the audience doubt how dangerous coal mining is, let me regale you with a story of uh, of a friend I had in college whose father was a coal miner, a career coal miner from West Virginia. And this guy, who was from a unionized mine and had been a miner all his life, was going to be a miner all his life, was quite proud to be a coal miner. And the um, the mine he worked at, the union had crafted this this deal where you could have up to a certain percentage of your total lung capacity destroyed by black lung. I think it was like 15%, right? And above that, for each additional percentage of your lung capacity destroyed by black lung, you got a one-time cash payment of $10,000. And this guy was really proud of the fact that he had gotten like two or three payments so far. Like he, like he so was like, like 17, 18% yeah. destroyed. And he wasn't walking around like, wow, my job has rid me of almost a fifth of my lung capacity. He's walking around like, wow, I took the company for like 30K. You know, I really made those guys feel it. And I breathe deep now. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, and he was really psyched about it. You know, and, it was, and I remember talking to his son about it. And he said, you know, you just have to understand – you know the 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 mindset of guys who you know, who grow up in that in that kind of you know especially in in certain areas where and, and th- this is true in in the coal country of Pennsylvania too um, you know where people grow up and they grow up expecting to be a miner and and that's all there is and 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 you know their their willingness to accept what would be to us totally unacceptable amounts of risk or just you know, right. it's off the chart. Was your friend Derek Zoolander? He he may have been. <laughs> oh, <laughs> good one, <laughs> Dad. I think I have the black lung. <laughs> <laughs> Yet another movie reference. <laughs> the cold Folks. country of uh, the cold country of New Jersey. <laughs> so, well, Emily, definitely keep us appraised as things uh, things continue to develop with this mine. I, I doubt very much this is, the, this is the last time anybody's heard about this. Right, so, I'll, uh, I'll be blogging about it on the on the uh, monitor as well. Outstanding, yeah. outstanding. So, well, thanks for following that, and uh, we'll get to something else right after the break. Okay, and we're back. So, if you've been following the news recently, you may or may not have heard that Tiger Woods has been in a little spot of trouble with, um, well, with Sprint. Oh. 
<laughs> exactly. He's a golfer. He's a scumbag. He's uh, oh, now. Sorry, too early. No, it's <laughs> <laughs> too early. <laughs> Apparently not for most of the civilized world. They've been, they, everybody's been taking their taking their their their. their He's their just misunderstood. He had, he had, oh, that's it. He had an addiction. <laughs> oh, he had Morgan. an addiction. He had to go All to right. treatment. Let's for still it. finish. Come on, that's the. So, so who deserves a bigger punch in the nose, Jesse James or Tiger Woods? I, I don't really I know. Tiger. I think maybe well, somebody should pick they up. Both, they both they seem to be uh, having a lot of. Um, Do Sandra um, and Apple have oh. kids? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, bleep, we'll bleep that out. Have yeah. kids together? I don't know. They do. They do not actually. No. And Tiger. <laughs> then Tiger. All right. Well, that makes perhaps we should pick up Jesse James and beat Tiger Woods with Jesse oh, James. That'd be nice. See, there you go. I no murder weapon. They, to watch that. Listen, they're not the only people in the world that have had extra mental affairs, this. but they're the dumbest people in the world because <laughs> there's like eighty-five thousand yeah. people willing to come out and say <laughs> so. Well, what's going on this week, of course, is that Woods has finally come back to, I guess it's the Masters. I really don't follow golf at all, but I'm guessing yes, it's the Masters. The Masters. Um, and, of course, he had a great big, he had his first press release uh, before it, and he, I guess, did his first uh, round of golf, I guess, yesterday. And what's been interesting is that, you know, well, at least in the, in the New York press area, I mean, the press has been actually pretty favorable towards him. I mean, his his press release went off pretty well. People seem to be very willing, you know, in a typical American fashion. It's because the redemptive, the, the, the redemption the, part of the hero story is is, right. is is a lot of fun. It's the final part of the of the story arc in America, yeah. most definitely. Um, and, and, you know, but what I always found interesting about Tiger. I, mean, I don't really care about Tiger personally. I mean, I don't follow him from a sports level or anything like that. But um, he is one of those guys where you know he is a one man enterprise. I mean, Tiger Woods is as much a brand as he is a sports hero. Um, as evidenced by the fact that, you know, after the scandal broke, he wasn't wearing his traditional Nike cap anymore. He was wearing his Tiger Woods logo cap for a while, you know, as and at a time when many of his other sponsors sort of fled him. So I've been interested in watching him come back from a reputational risk standpoint uh, because, I mean, he does not like he needs the money. Well, he may after his wife is done <laughs> dragging through divorce court. But, but, but definitely, you know, he's going to want to somehow reclaim a lot of the sponsorship revenue that he lost. And uh, so... so with that, I thought it was really interesting that Nike just aired a recent advertisement with with him. It was a thirty second spot. We're gonna play it. We're gonna play it, you know, the sound from it in just a minute. Um, but it's a real basic thing where you just see a picture of Tiger looking at the camera, looking very forlorn, very remorseful, and some words of his of his father played on top of it. Uh, take a listen. Tiger, I am more prone to be inquisitive to promote discussion. I want to find out what your thinking was. I want to find out what your feelings are. And did you learn anything? What we've got here is, 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 you know, obviously there are a lot, a lot of people have, have, you know, they, they've considered this to be a possibly controversial ad. They don't think it's in good taste. They're using his dead father to, you know, to brand him. It's just supposed to plug the heartstrings and make you feel right. Poor Tiger. Whatever. It's, no. just, it's a really easy way to. It's like the easy road to like. Oh, it is. Yeah, he's so you sorry. Know, right. Yeah, that touches my heartstrings. Because Nike always, Nike, good Nike commercials tend to like get that sort of like. Well, give Nike, that sort of like a yeah. little bit of an emotional kick because. I mean, this is just yeah. seems to be like an easy way out for them to do it. Well, well, Nike has become one of those brands, like say Apple and Coca Cola, where their advertisements aren't really about particular brands anymore, as much as they are about reminding you of this, like a this, yeah, a lifestyle and this cultural force that has become the brand. Um, but so anyway, 
that was interesting that Nike chose to stay by Tiger and all that. Uh, but it got me thinking about reputational risk management on a broader on a broader level. And I was doing some research for a story I wrote this week um, about a couple of companies in the past that have used really acute reputational risk management during times of crisis. And you could tell how in their in each of their cases their stock price actually went up after the crisis was over because of how they handled the reputational risk. Right. So check out this first one. Back in 1993, do you guys remember a there's a, a nationwide scare regarding hypodermic needles showing up in Pepsi cans? Do you guys remember yes. this at all? Remember this? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't even born. You're a bold <laughs> liar. Yeah, right. You're a li- what are you talking about? You're, you're 15 me. years old. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm violating labor laws just to have you be on this podcast. doesn't mean she, <laughs> can, uh, she can't drink Pepsi back in the day. <laughs> well, well, I, never, I, don't, I vaguely remember this. Yeah. All right. So check this out, okay? Because I, I I remember that I remember that that Pepsi scare pretty pretty well actually and it was, it was by all right so May thirty first nineteen ninety three Pepsi's share price is thirty one dollars by June 9th, okay that's when that was just you know the first trading day after the first report that a syringe had appeared in a can and the and the price of stock had dropped down to seventeen dollars forty three cents a share so it had almost dropped dropped down by half okay. By June 16th, there were claims in at least 24 different states that there are foreign objects appearing in Pepsi cans. And they weren't just hypodermic needles either. People were claiming to find lug nuts, screws, broken glass, all over the place. This epidemic of claims started coming in from across the country. People were finding all sorts of stuff in in, in, in Pepsi cans. Um, now, by June 17th, Pepsi finally catches a lucky break. Now, keep in mind, at this point, the FDA did not actually issue a recall or anything like that because or, 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 or even suggest that Pepsi do a voluntary recall because they did not find evidence that there was any tampering going on. So it was pretty clearly a reputational problem and just a public perception situation. And Pepsi, by this time, had scrambled a crisis team to engage the media very openly. They were getting their folks out as much as possible. I remember very much a front-page graphic on USA Today where they had this huge schematic of how their production line operates and how the cans know, move through the thing and how they, they turned upside down for like nine-tenths of a second to get filled up and they turned over again. And basically, it was mechanically impossible for this many different kinds of foreign objects to get involved in that many cans and that many different bottling facilities. It was just impossible. to. Ha- it was it was like getting hit by lightning while being eaten by a bear while driving in a runaway Toyota all at the same time. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen, right? But they still had this perception. By 617... Uh, somebody gets a woman named Gail Levine gets caught on closed circuit television, actually inserting a syringe into a can of soda in a in a store. So right, so that so Pepsi gets this, they put it out to the media all over the place. Look, people, this is all what we've been saying all along. Somebody's been putting the stuff in the cans, um, and that, and things kind of tail off. July fourth, Pepsi has a massive public uh, public marketing campaign over the fourth of July holiday. It's the whole Thanks America campaign, which is basically thank you for sticking with us. Um, by July nineteenth, they declared that the scare was over. Their stock price was still at the, about the same, seventeen seventy-five. Uh, but after that initial announcement, next trading day, the stock price goes up by about two bucks, and by the end of the year, their stock had gone back up to about twenty-one dollars. Then it continued to rise from there. So it's one of these. Mostly cl- that was probably Crystal Pepsi, that wasn't it? <laughs> right. Stuff was poison in the first place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> was better on the same time though? Uh, I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, 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 I knew a guy who actually. He loved cola, but he had a very strange allergy to the the syrup, the color, the cola colored syrup. Like, like, like he had right. a, a potentially fatal allergy to it, so he couldn't drink cola. And Crystal Pepsi came out. And he was buying cases of the stuff. He was like <laughs> he in seventh heaven. Some. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, he was buying like extraordinary amounts of it, and they canceled it. And he was like, "Why?" So, so, so that's a good case of how Pepsi. I mean, I, I mean, really, you know, they engaged. They, 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 it was kind of like a Tylenol scare thing, you know, where they they, they kind of had to because they were facing destruction on the brand. But they didn't just weather the storm. They actually 
you know, they restore some of the value by the time it was over. Now, an even more interesting example is Martha Stewart Omnimedia, right? Now, we all know she... Oh, the M-clone. Yeah, the M-clone thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, by the end of 2001, before the M-clone thing breaks, her stock is at $31 a share. By June 18th, 02, she makes her first public statement about this whole thing, because the M-clone thing comes out, and she basically basically told people just to, to bug off. She wasn't going to be bothered by this. Um, at that point, stock had dropped down to $7.25 a share. It had tanked. Um, she's indicted a year later. Stock's at nine fifty nine. She's sentenced. A, a, she, she's, tr- she's found guilty on March 4th the following year and sentenced uh, on July 4th, 04. Right? Now, this is the interesting thing. She's sentenced. Uh, the day she's sentenced, it's, uh, the, day be- the day before she's sentenced, her stock price is at $8.70 a share. Now, everybody widely expected her to to appeal this, to fight it, to ki- you know, fight the kicking and screaming. If you guys remember the case, her defense was pretty lackluster, and once they accepted the, the, the verdict, she just went, all right, that's a, I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to face it. I'm going to go to jail. And I remember a lot of media commentary was very surprised that she had actually she, she had decided to do this. You know, Now, I don't know why she chose to just simply go to jail. could just be a matter of she goes, I just want to put it behind me. could be that she figured, well— I'm just going to, you know, do at this point there's no sense in playing the inevitable. I'm just going to, you know, do essentially what the right thing is and go to jail. Her stock price jumped $4 after that. Okay? And this is in an era cuz by that time we had had the Merck accounting scandal, the Merrill Lynch accounting scandal, the Quest accounting scandal, Tyco, WorldCom, Parmalat, and a little known company, a little known company named AIG had just started with its first accounting scandal too. So one imagines that by that time Stewart just figured, you know what? <laughs> if I just do my time, you know, I'm not going to be at least as bad as the, I, I'm not going to be seen as. I'll be out of the headlines when this right. stuff. Yeah. They won't have to. They won't put have my name in with that list every time they run yeah. a story from here Smart until room. the end of time. So she starts serving her time on October 8th, 2004. She's out by March 4th, 2005. She goes in, and her stock price is sixteen dollars fifty-five cents. It continued to climb up to the point she went to jail. How much do you think her stock was worth by the time she gets out? Sixty dollars. Uh, not quite that much. Thirty six dollars eighty seven cents. But but but, blow it. <laughs> but it was worth higher than it was before her, yeah. before the stock high before all this stuff even started. And it's all because she had cultivated her reputation in a way like her fans rallied to her and people and, and people actually you know you know figured oh, we're gonna we're gonna wave off and and they realized the value she could still bring to the enterprise. And it's a very well, that's the other part of the redemption cycle. See, it's not just the fact that you fall from grace. It's People do like when you admit your failings, well, right? Right. You know, especially at, at a time when you know all those other accounting scandals I mentioned, there wasn't much accountability going on whatsoever. I mean, people were trying to dodge blame left and right. Right. So, that, so that that's a, so that worked. And so, as soon as she admits everything, now she's even more identifiable. Or actually, she right. probably went from being unidentifiable because she was Martha Stewart, perfect living or whatever. What is it, Martha Stewart living? I mean, just yeah. the whole idea <laughs> is very like perfect and re- you know, it just yeah. it's always pretty arrogant. And uh, yeah, but. And yeah, Martha but then Stewart. as as she you know admits to wrongdoing and yeah. actually pays a price for it in jail, it's like oh you're kind of just like a screw up like the rest of us. Yeah. So not only now now your your stuff looks good and I kind of like identify because I have a I have a crazy brother who went to jail for some stupid parking tickets once and now you're just like us. <laughs> so yeah. you identify and now it's, now yeah, it's right. just plus you got some sweet neck tattoos in prison, didn't she? I think so. <laughs> neck tattoos. Wasn't it around the same time she was like appearing on like MTV Awards with like Busta Rhymes and yeah, yeah. like she had some like street cred now. Yeah. She, she, she actually she had a whole different segment she, of the audience. She actually made a joke that when she was in in jail she called herself M Diddy. M Diddy. Exactly. So, but 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 no, but she went she she kind of went to jail as so many people I mean if if you weren't a fan of hers she was kind of one of these people people love to hate. Right. And somehow, you know, she developed a b- amount of sympathy and she came back and, 
And it's not just you know personally people felt be- felt better for her. It's that her enterprise, her company, actually recovered as a result of that. Because well, her care- enterprise is, is very much dependent on Martha Stewart. Right, the, person. it's the, the personality exactly. I mean, you know, which is just like Tiger. I mean, all his, yes, right. that was what the whole thing. You know, Nike standing behind him. Mm-hmm. Well, pretty much Nike either had to stand behind him or drop their complete golf line because he is their golf line. Like, yeah, they, have they created it around him right, and completely. for him and with him, and, and they have no products that don't have his name on it. So it was either yeah. completely abandoned everything they did in that for the last ten years, yeah. or stand behind him. Well, the, well, the, the, you know, the, the Nike kind of caught lucky bounce in the sense that they had already positioned positioned themselves from a media perspective as the kind of firm that could run an ad like what like, like the one that they ran, where it's not about a product, it's not it's, it, it, it's just about this personality and their their obvious connection to him. They could do that, and it doesn't look really really out of line cuz i mean co- i mean i mean nike has done some kind of bizarre kind of non sequitur ads in the past so it's not entirely out of line with what the, with with the kind of media statement they make so they're well, they're, so they're not taking that much of a risk i mean if you look at a lot of the coverage now it's it's borderline fawning over the fact that he even is back playing golf yeah every there was something like i forget i was watching the daily show or whatever and they were cracking jokes about it but there was like 250 people covering the practice like the earlier yeah. week practice of before the tournament started which is not normally the press concentration for this sort of event. So they're covering it like news. I mean, every news story is probably leading off of what Tiger did in a golf tournament, which generally people don't care about unless Tiger Woods was involved in the first place. It's not that hard for Nike to go, oh, what, do we, what do we have to lose? People already kind of have voted, and they've said, well, we, we want Tiger to do well, even if he might be a jerk. Yeah. So. You still like the, you like the athlete, maybe not the person. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah, well, um, well, there's a third example, which is which is kind of still ongoing, which is which is Walmart, whose reputation is, I mean, its its position as a global retailer is completely unquestioned, but its reputation is a little, it's kind of a work in progress. Um, right. it, and it, I mean, it doesn't seem to have had as radical an effect on stock prices, say Martha Stewart. I mean, she, her stock price really hit the floor. Um, but in 1999, Walmart's trading at 67.37. 2001, PBS runs the first of two documentaries about Walmart where they really kind of start questioning is is the way Walmart does business good for America, right? The first one's called Store Wars, where it really that's where they really kind of start blowing the lid off the whole notion that Walmart runs into a small town, they put all the mom and pop guys out of business, you know, they, they brand themselves as, you know, down-home Americana, but are they really, you know, a lot of the things they manufacture are from uh, from overseas, you know, all that all that stuff. Um so 2001, PB, the PBS one thing airs. Stock is down to 56.35. By 2002, it's down to 46.50. By 2004, PBS follows up Star, Star Wars with another movie called "Is Walmart Good for America?" All right. By uh, September the following year, the stock is down to 43.20. Now it's up to 55.49. And it's all, and 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 concurrently, it seems it, it, what you've got is is what appears to be a pretty sustained effort by Walmart to, to acknowledge the fact that the reputation is hurting them and to kind of rebuild it brick by brick. Yeah, those PBS ones were probably maybe more mainstream, but there was another one of uh, the high cost of low prices that really yeah, got into, right. you know, their some of the conditions for some of the Chinese workers that were in their factories, the fact that they've had all these, the few high profile cases where they lock immigrant workers, like cleaners, in their stores at night. They have the huge class action suit with women. Right. Um, you know, which there was a pretty big settlement in that one. I mean, pretty much any retail thing that goes wrong usually happens at Walmart, but that might be more attributable to the fact that There's everything so is Walmart. So <laughs> yeah, right. it's not necessarily them. I did well, see I mean, like an old, uh, a few years ago, the Penn & Teller used to have a show called... BS? BS. Yeah. You know, more colorfully. And I I just happened to run into an episode, I guess a repeat, that happened to be about Walmart going through all like the pros and cons. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's 
over the past few years, that's just been like a good go-to topic for you know, is yeah. Walmart evil? Yeah, right. Pretty much. Well, Walmart obviously has not, has not taken this line down, and 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 they seem seem to be you know acknowledging the impact of all this. And what's been interesting is that uh, in you know recent history, they've done a lot of serious you know heavy lifting to rebuild a reputation. Um, according to this one one report I've got here, um, all right, they start they start telling their suppliers t- in China to improve social and sustainability standards. Uh, I guess in April of last year, they had a two-day press conference for members of the media, I guess, to field questions. Um, they announced plans to revise pay and promotion programs. And uh, and as of uh, February 1 of last year, their commu- their total community donations totaled $423 million, uh, which is no small small amount of money. Um, in fact, I think we're, we're doing something in the magazine shortly about, uh, you know, you know, you know it's, it sort of touches upon the notion of, you know, companies like Walmart – uh, and Home Depot and that sort of thing, kind of getting on the front lines between public-private disaster management stuff, you know. You know, and Walmart has has been very big big into that. Um, but but check this out. So by April of last year, all the stuff finally starts to pay off, right? Uh, the Reputation Institute announces that Walmart had seen the largest gains in its reputation amongst other companies they had surveyed, uh, improving their their reputation pulse scores by more than twelve points year over year. Uh, same period of time, Harris Interactive noted that uh, the only company with greater improvement in its actual reputation score um, was wait, 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 uh, sorry, I'm screwing that up. They mentioned that of their of their study, the highest one was Walmart. And they had increased their reputation by five points. Uh, so I mean, so I mean, I guess the point I'm trying to make here with Walmart, their their gravity well is so big they kind of ignore lots of external circumstances, but. What I find so interesting about this, and getting back to the whole Tiger Woods thing, is that you know we talk about reputation risk a whole lot in this podcast. I mean, we often like poking fun at companies that seem to have done something horrible. Their reputation. Oh, is, and we is are done, not done even done today talking yeah, about yeah. that. You know, <laughs> Messi but, being one, right? And you know, but 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 what's interesting to note is that as bad as, and as easy as reputation is to wreck, it's not that it's irrevocable. You can you can actually rebuild it if you're willing to put in the work, and if you're willing to also to, to address as things are getting bad. It's never too late to start managing your reputation risk, and I think that's the big the big lesson here. Um, Woods obviously learned it, you know, a little little late in the game, uh, but I mean, any company that's facing a major crisis can do it. So that's why I thought was was kind of interesting. I just thought I'd thought I'd share with all you guys. Um, if you have any comments out there in podcast land that you want to want to weigh in on this, by all means, drop by the uh, the monitor blog, and uh, we encourage you to uh, write comments on this. We'll, we'll probably do a post to follow up this podcast with some show notes, so you can take a look at 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 at, at a video clip of the ad. Uh, Nike's running as well as any other links to uh, Tiger Woods and sound off. See what you have to say about this because um, I know it's just a story just about one sports hero, but it's larger than just that, and reputation always is. So, all right, indeed, indeed. Title of this story should probably be "Let's All Move to Copenhagen." <laughs> okay. Um, Done. Over there in Denmark, um, there's been a big strike going on. Very controversial issue here in the Carlsberg beer uh, factory. They um, Carlsberg made the decision that, that its employees really disagreed with. Previously, they were allowed to pretty much drink whenever they wanted during the day. There was a restriction, though, that you could not be drunk at work. It was up to each and every one to be responsible. That's what the company spokesman said. Um, so, you know, instead of taking a cigarette break, up, I think it was up to three beers a day is what another news source was saying. 
So you could just, you know, leave the line, go hang out, sit in the break room for a while. Have a and pint. Yeah, you couldn't just take them off the line, though. There was coolers in the back, so it was all oh, okay. kind of organized. Yeah. I think there was about three beers per day per person that were, like, allotted in the break room. What an uh, utterly civilized policy. Kind of <laughs> pretty good. Very European, you know. Yeah, they oh, trust yeah, yeah. the workers to not get drunk. Yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah, course of the day, I don't think you could really – I mean, you could probably – unless you're – you know, lightweight. Pretty, yeah, and these are blue collar guys. They're probably there at seven. I don't think there's a single lightweight at seven thirty. Yeah. <laughs> there's not. A, there's not lightweights <laughs> yeah. working at a brewery. Yeah, so you're exactly. Not worry about somebody getting hammered off a half a beer, be like, whoa. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just Screw off my work. <laughs> <laughs> but this policy is now over. And it over. Led, led to a strike. Okay. Now, now they're only allotted one beer per day during lunch. <laughs> I like how they didn't kill the policy entirely. It just went down to one beer a day, which is still during lunch. Which is still a million times more than what you have in America. Yes. <laughs> well, you could have as many as you want. It, just don't tell your boss if you wanted to go out to, you know, have a beer with lunch. Be frowned upon, but this is a company policy. Yeah, you could go out and drink if you wanted, but you couldn't get your free Carlsberg beers. Yeah. Oh, right. Um, so what the response was was 800 workers went on strike on Wednesday. Another 250 walked off their jobs on Thursday. What? And also on Thursday. Those 250 were too drunk to walk the day before. <laughs> yeah, right. They slept it off Wednesday night. <laughs> they didn't know what was going on. They didn't even hear about it. Yeah. They were hammered. And, um, but then also on Thursday, Carlsberg's truck drivers joined the strike in sympathy, says the, the article. Because, you know, like, we the drivers are like, yeah. what is this crap? <laughs> exactly. No, 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 no. They, but they just drove. I mean, they um, only joined it in sympathy, literally. Quoting from the M- MSNBC article, the truck drivers are permitted to bring three beers from the canteen because they often don't have time to have lunch while they're driving. So, wait, beer is wow. lunch? Beer is lunch because it's more portable. Yeah, but I'm saying the truck drivers are allowed to drink. I've been and saying just, for years, yes. beer is just bread you can drink, man. It is a meal yeah, in a yeah, can. There's a pork chop in every can. The truck dro- <laughs> The trucks. A pork chop? What kind of beer are you drinking? <laughs> <laughs> pork chop here? Pork chop brown? Let's <laughs> get a brown. I'm Emily Holbrook, and I'd like you to drink Carlsberg beer. Carlsberg, pork a pork chop in every can. <laughs> yeah. Wow, can't wait to get right. some. The <laughs> trucks do, for safety concerns, the trucks do have alcohol ignition locks. All right, so. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. So if you go over. Yeah. No, that makes sense, though. They're no. like, you could drink, but if you through. but if you blow over, you're, you're, we're not even going to give you the ability or to drink. Or just say, hey, you're drivers, you can't drink. Yeah. Of course, if you do it, you're allowed to drink. You're just not allowed to drink and you're not allowed to be drunk when you drive. Of course, I will say the alcohol ignition locks don't do much if you start up the ignition, get rolling, then have your beers on the 500-kilometer drift from Copenhagen you don't to don't shut the truck you know, off, does it Prague. Ever, you know, like, how many times have you seen an idling truck? It's a solid point. I bet some people have thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> so is the strike still ongoing? Well, today's Friday, so they haven't really had a lot. But it says supplies were hit Friday uh, after angry warehouse staff walked out, and um, there has been distribution problems. No. So Does anybody drink Carlsberg? I've never really. That's I've never had it. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's good. Is this going to bad. affect us? I mean, I'm going to drink some Carlsberg today. <laughs> yes, of course. But I don't know if that's going to be in sympathy of the wor- like. Will that be against the workers? What would be the work? What would be the worker friendly thing to do right now? The worker friendly thing to do would be for not drink Carlsberg. No, it would be for Jared to have informed us about the story a little earlier in the day. We could have been drinking Carlsberg while doing this podcast. Oh, All right, that's true. Yeah. That but I don't know. I just want to support them, so I'm not sure what would be the pr- appropriate way to. Uh, I'm show going my on strike. You're not going to drink Carlsberg? <laughs> no, I'm just going on strike from this job. Out <laughs> <laughs> of sympathy, Bill. That's it. You're sympathy. Very sympathetic. Bill, you have to pay for Carlsberg. That's final. I mean, obviously, while why Carlsberg is doing this is safety concerns. They, there, I don't think there was any reports of like an uptick in um, See, you know, that, accidents that or anything. That was my big question. Was there something to prompt this, or did somebody just I don't figure think this is? I, don't you think know what I, think I mean, there wasn't an, I, I've seen all, all the stories are pretty similar. They're all pretty AP-ish. And, um, 
you know. I don't think it's I don't think it's safety. See, to me, what it sounds like is like we're going to say it's safety. It's really generated Not by the straight. fact that we don't want to we don't want to spring for the beer. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you guys drink a ton of beer. You you know. <laughs> So we're going to say we. Really be, you know what I mean? I'm just saying, if if there's no incident there, that that precipitated this, then it's got to be based on budget. And they well, call I it su- safety. I, you know, I su- no, well, that's not necessarily true either because Carl's. Then again, Bur- it's probably maybe it's maybe it's proactive. Specifically, it says in the MSNBC article, Carlsberry had mulled a stricter drinking policy for years and finally decided right. to impose the new rules. Yeah. Right. Well, then they just then they do. Yeah, I can't. I mean, it's, it's smart. So it seems like something they probably like realized that it was going to be from a liability standpoint. Probably is what I'm imagining. It can't be from a budgetary because look, I mean, when you're producing beer on the scale that Carlsberg is producing right. beer for the amount of employees they have. I mean, even if they're giving free beer to everybody who lives in the town where the factory is, it's still pennies on the bottle. I mean, it's not, not that. Fact. It's, I mean, we talk about much. we talk about risk management. And, you know, preventing these things from happening. It'd be kind of you know, all of a sudden I'm flipping it and being like, "Oh, you only did it because you wanted to <laughs> save money." <laughs> right. Obviously, this is a smart thing to do. From there, you got right. people so, running heavy machinery. Maybe alcohol shouldn't really be something they're uh, consuming. So, how long has this policy been 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 Always, around for? Um, I forget. And, and it's it, a really old brewery. I mean, right, right. I, I'm getting this feeling that they've had, like, I, I, see, what, I, what I'm guessing is that this isn't just a bunch of surly workers who are used to free beer. This could, could this also be a matter of just tradition, where, I mean, people who work for the brewery think, well, it's been this way for, I don't know, well, you know potentially, potentially centuries, right? I mean, I, 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 I Carlsberg, Carlsberg had, had been giving away free beer to its, to, its, to its employees for, what, potentially decades, centuries? Yeah, I mean, I think, I'm, I don't have a date on when the beer, when the brewery started, but I think it was, like, 1800s. Um, really old, anyways, and so yeah, I think it is a lot of tradition, and, and that's why what I think goes back to this, um, they've been mulling, instituting a stricter policy. I think you know it's probably one of those things they kind of recognized, hey, it's 2010 or it's 2005 or whatever. We can't really be doing this that much anymore. It's <laughs> yeah, not right. You know, even like in the 80s, I feel like people like used to have like the three martini lunches in the U.S. and stuff. Oh yeah, sure, a big deal. But you know, last 20, 15 years have kind of put an end to that. Just socially and stuff. So I imagine they've been they've been planning to do this for a while, and they realized how much of an outrage there was going to be by the staff, who their fathers' fathers and fathers have probably yeah. you know, done that. Yeah. So that was probably what kind of prevented them from doing that. So now I'm wondering if if Carlsberg has like a carry home policy because you know a lot of brewer, a lot of other breweries like Samuel Adams and I think Guinness as well allow um, allow workers you know at the, at the production facilities just to bring home free brew. And you can consume it off premises. You know that seems like it might be a pretty good middle ground. I mean, there's no not, no problem giving away free beer, but I mean, if they're drinking it off the off the premises, you don't have at least server liability. I mean, it, 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 I mean that's what it'd be in America. I mean, I don't know in Denmark what the legal um, what the legal ramifications are, but certainly in America, you'd, that'd be one very easy way to sidestep the at least the the, the, the worst part of the liability. Right. Well, so I don't know. Good. That's a solution. Uh, is every employee is on strike. All of eight hundred employees. I don't know how many they have. That's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. <laughs> that's that that, that, that that's no small thing. And there's like I said, the drivers also went. I wonder what Carlsberg's going to have to do to get them back. You know, back. back. I don't know. Right. Like you're saying, if they can give away free beer, maybe they can tie them over. But maybe they were already were giving away free beer, so then it's like entirely possible. Yeah, so. more free beer. You're, yeah, yeah. That's it's hard. That's hard to say. Would we take they do something for safety's sake? Yeah, very well. Just turn around and go. Right. Yeah, that. W- uh, all right. Fine. What, a, what a horrible lesson this is to teach, right? It's like they're doing something. I mean, essentially, you know, to to, to do something which to, to, on on paper it's an obvious thing. What they're drinking beer on the on the on the yeah. production line or whatever. Fine, don't don't do it. And then all of a sudden, you've now got you're now trading a potential workers' compensation situation or a liquor liability situation for now a very large. Uh, business interruption and supply chain problem. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's like they like, they can't win. You have to go hire a bunch of people that are willing to work for less beer. 
That might be an option. <laughs> well, they don't work they're for by, they're, they're, they're bringing they're bringing two beer scabs. Yeah. <laughs> right. well, but hey, look if they if that's if that's your standard of work, just go. This is the just rules. Go to the U.S. Open up Sorry, right here. you know, I mean, I don't know what you would do if you. We can't just like cave in when because people don't like it. If you did thought about the policy, you implemented it. The, we can't yeah, American, the average American would not be able to appreciate what goes into a, a, a Denmark exactly. beer. No, it, it makes it sound like they're. I mean, they're so spoiled. I know that's what they're used to. That's what they've always gotten, but. Rules are rules. We will not work for well, I mean, it also shows years. you how hard it is to institute any sort of safety thing. I mean, obviously, this is more contentious because it's had a history, and it's pretty good, pretty good freaking working perk, you know, to have a that's awesome drink at work. No, but absolutely, I think that's fantastic. I mean, I think we've seen people like the construction industry is notorious for like all they want is like their employees to wear hard hats, which is pretty much preventing them from getting their heads smashed in. And guys yeah. are like, no, no way, I'm not doing yeah, that. Yeah, crap. exactly. Yeah, safety <laughs> harness that's for jerks. Exactly. <laughs> <You know>? My <laughs> dad didn't wear a safety harness. I'm not wearing one either. Yeah. Right. So it's how do you die? Oh, he fell off a building. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Think about it. Speaking of, you know, I keep looking out the window of my office where they are deconstructing a skyscraper across the street from this office, from, from the, the Rim's headquarters, and floor by floor they are jackhammering the concrete foundation of the floor, and then they're cutting through the I beams, and it's just this extraordinarily loud and bothersome thing. And I, I, I I'm constantly looking out my window, seeing how closer to the ground they're getting because. It is really distracting. And I'll tell you what, (laughs) every day I look over and I expect to see people dead. I mean, there are like forklifts driving around these big holes in the floor. There are guys walking with, I mean, on these very precarious ledges and appear to have no fall protection whatsoever. I mean, they're walking on wet surfaces. I'm like, it looks like the most unsafe work environment And then one day you're going to look up and that thing's going to be gone. It's so amazing how, you know. Yeah. That'll just be gone one day. Like, when you don't expect that it could have been gone that quickly. I will come into work one day expecting to hear another chorus of unholy jackhammering, and then I'll look out and I'll see there is nothing there but just a great big you know pad of concrete on the ground floor. Yeah, and it'll just as as if fairies came in and whisked the building away. <laughs> and some guys with blueprints for the skyscraper they're about to put up. You know, that's the backstory. Thing. You know, every time I look like, oh, they've only got five floors left, and somebody you know, the next next office over, she goes, you know, they're gonna have to build something to replace it, right? I'm like, oh man, it's like you be a park. Yeah, you have to be a park right in the heart of Manhattan. That's what we need. Some grassy space next to a park. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I guess. Well, if they had a few beers and they shared them with you. All I know is that, you know, if if the Carlsberg people really wanted to get some sympathy for the story, they would have held off on their strike until more like the Christmas season when a lot of people have, you know, alcohol-fueled office parties. <laughs> and walk off then, and all, and all of a sudden everybody, everybody in the world is, is counting on the office party going, oh, wait a minute. Where's our beer? Where's our beer? Exactly. So, Well, I wish the, um, them, them luck and success and... More beer. It was great. One of the Danish health, Danish health officials, he found it amazing that the brewery was still allowed to uh, drink alcohol in this day and age at work. Uh, and his quote was, uh, some employees may not think they're affected by three beers, but if you're not affected after three drinks, then you have a serious alcohol problem. <laughs> <laughs> Morgan. It's also a good lesson Morgan. Morgan. <laughs> hey, now, that's called breakfast. <laughs> Right, so in my uh, in our continuing uh, spotlight on companies doing stupid things, let's talk about the airline industry, who once again made headlines for charging us for stupid stuff. This time, Spirit Airlines has decided that they're going to charge you f- not just for the, the check luggage, which everybody has decided to do. After I think they and like American Airlines, like two or three years ago, said, "Oh, let's let's charge for check bags." People are like, "Oh, that's terrible!" And then now everybody does it. Yeah. Yeah. Now Didn't they're Southwest char- just start doing it. 
I, I, weren't they like the last holdout? They might have been. I don't know. I haven't been following it since that first, my first uh, outrage from two years ago. It's like, oh, I'm outraged. And now it's just like, I'm well, taking the train. Damn it. <laughs> but now Spirit Airlines is charging for carry on luggage. In other words, anything that fits that you have to put in the overhead okay. can charge up to $45 a bag. Oh, that's is ridiculous. Right. So well, you know, well, 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 wait, wait a minute. In, in, in fairness, though, ever since people started, ever since airlines started charging for baggage, People have started putting ridiculous amounts of baggage in the overheads. I mean, they're putting entire suitcases that may be up the case, there. But here's which the is thing. ridiculous when you're trying to get on and off the plane. Yeah. It's just oh, like, it's awful. It really gets under my that's skin. That's not a carry-on, dude. Yeah, yeah I know. All these people <laughs> trying to st- stuff it your in there. Your steamer like... trunk that you're trying to put up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, what are you doing? It's a grand piano, dude. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's a human body in that. Now put in the freaking baggage check know, where it belongs. I don't know about you guys, but usually, usually the excuse is like, oh, they lose luggage all the time. If they did anything like if they lost luggage all the time, <laughs> no one would no one would fly. fly. Exactly. I have had my luggage lost once. You know when it showed up? Two hours later from when I got off the plane. Once I lost in, my and I've gone in my quite my share of uh, air, airline. I flights. lost my luggage once one time. United Airlines lost my luggage and it actually ended up in Guam. I was coming from <laughs> I was coming from I was going from Puerto Rico back to home and somehow it found its way to Guam and it was still back to my house within twenty four hours of my initial right. departure. So they they put that on a fast plane back home. And so it's, I mean, fairly, it's, not it's a that fairly bad. easy process to check your bags, but all these people want to stuff their you know, their luggage in there and then and I actually have had to, been one of those people that have gotten on the plane a little late, tried to go put something in the overhead, and found the whole thing jammed, oh, yeah. even though there was open seats somehow. Yeah. So then they had to take what I intended to be an overhead you know, carry-on yeah. and chuck it on the bottom of the plane, and stuff that was in there that I hadn't packed for the bottom of the plane broke. Yeah, sure. And it's nothing that was, like, you know, valuable, but yeah. just kind of annoying. Your vase. Yes, my vase. I had a vase collection. <laughs> I would usually bring with me carry on. Porcelain I like, dolls. I like to gaze at the crystal. <laughs> it's porcelain anyway, dolls. Point is, we get Spirit Air now. Doll now, collection. now, uh, charging for overheads. Now, it used to be I understood when they were charging for bags because that was when the gas prices were ridiculous, like two years ago. And yeah, they sure. Were, like justifying it by saying, you know, hey, uh, we got to pay a lot. More. We got to pay more to get the plane off the ground for fuel. So we're gonna pass those that savings on to you. We're yeah, right. Cost on to you. This seems to me, though, with like gas prices kind of leveling out, this is just one of those like, what else can we charge them for? Yeah, exactly. Because like they've they've got a really like fancy Spirit being like a discount airline has got this program. I guess if you sign on to whatever club they have, you can get penny flights. So the flights cost a penny, but you pay you pay for fuel, which they've calculated how much fuel they're going to use per person for that flight. You'll pay the taxes and fees, and if you pay the overhead. Let's see. Well, here's a breakdown. This is the most ridiculous pay-as-you-go program right. I've so ever Spirit heard of. Spirit says they're, they're discount, right? So think about this. So they've got – I got this uh, from Detroit to Vegas. Say you decided you want to take Spirit. and Your ticket would cost a penny. Okay. Pretty good deal. All right? But then the fuel is going to cost $54. All right? All right. Taxes are about 20 bucks. Your carry-on, you had a carry-on, that's about $45. Now it's up to about $120 for the flight, which is pretty much standard to go from, I guess – you know, seems like an average flight. That's so, really, yeah, thanks for nickel and diming me with these little stupid costs. Yeah. Why don't you just put it on the ticket and stop pretending you're charging me a penny? <laughs> <laughs> you know, plus you live in Detroit. Plus you live in Detroit, <laughs> which sucks. And you're going to Vegas, so you're gonna have no money. Anyway. You live in Detroit. I'm assuming you're getting a one-way ticket. <laughs> yes, forty-five dollars seems a little crazy. They also raised their uh, rates for checked bags to forty-five bucks, yeah. which is usually it was like twenty when it first started. But it's a kind of a nickel and dime thing that's interesting. On top of that, another one. Ryanair, which is an Irish. Oh airline. yeah, Ryanair is always now they just doing fly around in emotional Europe. type stuff. They fly around Europe and they've decided their new policy is going to be pay toilets. I've heard about this. Yeah. Now initially it was initially the uh, the CEO had said something like you know 
we only fly like our flights. Screw you. Why do you need all these bathrooms? Yeah, sure. But they're gonna they're gonna charge pay toll. It's gonna be about a pound or a euro per visit. And in doing that, they figure they're gonna cut the amount of people who are gonna want to go to the bathroom, so they can take out some of the bathrooms, add more seating. You know, <laughs> that's their strategy. <laughs> that, that way lies you know, disaster. And, and one of the, and one of the, uh, one of the is a good quote in here from uh, one of the representatives. Where was this? And I didn't find it. Oh, so by charging for the toilets, we're hoping to change passenger behavior so they may use the bathroom before and after the flight. Mm-hmm. That will allow us to move the toilets and make way for at least six extra seats, which sounds like what your parents used to do when you were going on a trip. Did you go to the bathroom? Make sure you go to the bathroom before you get in the yeah, car. Right. I don't want to stop on the way. See, where this <laughs> seems to really, really venture into it looks good on paper territory right. is the fact that Ryanair made its, its, its market share by offering super cheap flights right. from London to Dublin, mainly so that English people can go to Ireland and drink their heads off for the weekend, and so Irish people can go over to London drink their heads off over the weekend. It's akin to people in Jersey and Connecticut taking the train into New, New York and just right. getting blotto over the weekend and then going back home again and figuring it out. Are you sure you really want people who have been tying one on for a whole weekend to go into a plane that's got a shortage of bathrooms? I've got to figure that there's going to be some, quote, accidents. I'm air mm-hmm. quoting right now. You know, I would just be like, I don't got a dollar, but that's a hallway. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got, I've got an air yeah. sickness bag and a, and a, and a, and a tray table. Or, or worse still, people are like, I'm going to get my money's worth here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, or something. Just hang out in there for like this an is hour. horrible. horrible but here's idea. the thing. Who, all right, now we all look what at this stuff. What if this catches on? Now realize this. You all are going to laugh that's and a go, terrifi- that's, that's a terrifying crazy. concept. But just like checked bags, started it started with the discount airlines, and now it's everywhere. This will catch on. Not necessarily the pay toilets, because that seems ridiculous. Yeah. But you can gar- I can guarantee you within oh, a year, uh, uh, paying for paying for it's going to hit all the what they call the legacy carriers, the big ones, you know, the United yeah, yeah, yeah. and all the U.S. Airs and all that. And um, you will see this. Yeah. It's going to happen, which means you're going to get a lot of people who are going to be traveling with like 47 outfits on just so they can. <laughs> yes. And then they're going to get in trouble because they're going to fill up the seat too big, and people are going to start uh-huh. getting mad because they're well, taking they're, up too much They're going to fall foul right. that one airline that was charging, uh, especially heavy people, right? Like 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 two. Kevin Smith. Yeah, Kevin Smith. Oh, that's the, right. Uh, Kevin got in trouble. He almost got thrown off a plane because he was too big. He was too big. Seat, yeah. to somebody. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Now, while that, now we all got to look and, um, you know, we got to look and realize that that's going to happen, and we're going to be charged more for these stupid little things, and it's probably a money making thing, not a fuel thing or whatever. So, uh, Ray LaHood, who's the transportation secretary, he was interviewed on his uh, on the blog of uh, Christopher Elliott. He's like a travel blogger. He works for. Um, He's the ombudsman for National Ge- Geographic Traveler, and he writes a travel blog. Okay. He interviewed Ray LaHood, and he happened to mention him. Well, what's the story with all this stuff? And the um, he's, he, he asked him, do you think Spirit has crossed the line? And he goes, and Ray LaHood's response was, I don't think they care about their customers. You know, And he goes, we, I think I, that's what I think. And I think when you charge somebody to use the bathroom, you don't care about your customers. It's pretty clear. So he, uh, so later on, he's, you know, he says, Ray LaHood's like, well, I want to hold their feet to the fire for this. He's like, well, what do you mean? Well, I'm thinking we're, we're getting together for some – we're going to start talking about some rulemaking, and I think this is going to come up. Now, I don't know what authority the transportation has the, – you know, the, the, uh, the Department of Transportation has over the airlines. But what you basically did was you pissed off the government, who is now going to look and see if there's anything they can do to, to basically prevent you from nickel and diming yeah. passengers. Oh, does Ryanair even fly to America? Well, Ryanair wouldn't count. This would be for more for Spirit. Like, oh, they, have, okay. they would have no real jurisdiction over Oh, so LaHood was talking like, about the carry-on baggage. LaHood was talking oh, about Oh, I thought LaHood was Spirit talking about Airlines. the— Well, he was initially oh, okay. talking about—he did. I did mention the bathrooms. He doesn't like that, but he was—but yeah. the feet of the fire he mentioned about Spirit. Mainly oh, about the baggage, yeah. American. Obviously, he, he personally yeah. doesn't like the idea of the bathrooms. Mm-hmm. I think it's weird. Now, you now 
from Spears' perspective, think about how badly this could backfire if all of a sudden, because they had to be a bunch of nickel and diming cheapos, they may or may not all of a sudden have government regulation thrown in their face because, oh, you know what? Because what company wants more regulation? Well, now you got it because you didn't really <laughs> think ahead, did you? Not only did you alienate your customers, but you sort of annoyed the transportation secretary. I have to wonder if LaHood's interest in this came because he took a spirit flight and, and discovered be. only too late <laughs> yeah. that the grand piano he wished to put a <laughs> above his seats, with a, a wouldn't fit, and B, he's going to get charged. Well, you, know, you know, they, they like, they, there was... They recently, the the Department of Transportation, they had they instituted a rule about um, delays on the tarmac. You know when they'd yeah. be like, oh, yeah, they have yeah, to yeah. sit for seven hours. And now if there's, they actually get fined if they go over a certain amount of time, and they're mm-hmm. obligated by law to provide, you know, drinks and bathroom and breaks and all the stuff and relief. <laughs> yeah, Bi- biological relief of some you know, kind. No, it was a safety safety and health thing as far as they're concerned. Yeah. So I mean, if they want to, I don't know how they extrapolate safety and health to charging for overhead baggage, but they might, you know, it could be something like. You're not actually, you know, mm-hmm. telling people what the ticket price. You're misrepresenting the cost of the yeah, flight. Right. I mean, if if an American company tried to ban bar bathrooms, I could see that falling under yeah. like a safety health sort of thing. You know. Well, with apologies to all of our friends in the airline industry who may be listening to this podcast, I hear stories like this, and it makes me really glad that I'm taking the train to attend Rims 2010 Boston and yeah. not the plane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's plane flight is bad enough. If you start, I just don't. It's it's it just strikes me as a. Uh, Dumb to make it worse for us as as yeah. consumers. I don't know where you would go though, because obviously the plane is the only way to go from you know coast to coast. If you need to, sort of a captive audience, if you will. I hope LaHood has the authority to do something about this. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I can't see how. Like I said, it's hard to see how he would, but it seems like com- sometimes a company might need to be a little bit more aware of the fact that something that might have seemed good on the yeah. bottom line might have some repercussions you didn't quite consider. Yeah, that's yeah, a well, weird thing though, because I mean, it's, you know, it's a Free market. You right. should be able to charge what you want for your service. But then again, I mean, it's, you know, quasi, I wouldn't say monopoly, but, you know, like it's off all the airlines start doing one procedure that mm-hmm. then we're kind of, we well, have no you, other option. Which they will. If you put this thing into like, you know, I guess the theme of this has been like a reputation, this, this podcast, a lot of reputation issues. At mm-hmm. the very least, who's going to want to fly Spirit if you have a choice? I mean, it's right. other than the I fact that heard it's, of it, so I wasn't well, it's a cheaper it. airline, but if you start adding fees like, you know, yeah. bag fees, it's no longer cheap. Yeah. Now, it, now, is Spirit confined to a particular region, or is it was a truly national I, airline? I can't say I know I much about it. I to Florida. It's a crappy airline. <laughs> Very like discount. Well, it's bare a discount bones. airline. I know. Yeah. What I think its hub is Fort Lauderdale. Or see, I always fly out of Newark, and so I take Continental almost everywhere I go. That's I mean, if I'm not taking yeah. Continental, I'm taking JetBlue. Right. So it's I don't, if there's other airlines out there, I don't know what they do. <laughs> I took Virgin back from uh, Las Vegas recently. It was great. Oh yeah, was it good? Yeah, internet and everything, free Wi-Fi. Oh, get the heck out! Really? Like, you know, on-demand, on-demand video. movies and stuff. You can, yeah, you it's can great. pay for like the ones I think they were still in the theaters, or either just came out in the theaters, and then you know, free ones that are just like you know. See, you know, I have stuff. I have to question then the business planning of a airline like Spirit that's going just the real nickel and dime route versus something like Virgin, and even before that, JetBlue. You know, where they're just you know the idea was they're going to give you lots of things you wouldn't even take for granted in other lines. They're going to give you you know a TV in the back of the in the back of the seat in front of you, you know, and, and really nice snacks and all that sort of thing. I mean, obviously, I mean Virgin's not hurting. You know, well, it's 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 there's two it's the, it's the either you you get repeat customers based on the service that you provide, right? You know, it's a little bit of a luxury. Perhaps you'll be willing to pay a little more, or you. You you make money on uh, on bulk, you know the Walmart strategy. You know I'm not necessarily providing you frills. I'm providing you the service to get you from point A to point B at the cheapest rate you can. So, if people are governed by what are they govern? Are you governed by? If you're governed by the pocketbook, well you go with Spirit. If you're governed by the f- ease of flight, maybe you go with Virgin. Mm-hmm. Virgin is more likely more expensive, 
then you know it's a more expensive option. Hmm. It's just how you decide to run your business model. I just think that if for a while when you start doing stupid things that start to get under people's skin, yeah. people are less and less likely to patronize your airline and therefore your whole idea of making your money on bulk goes out the window because there's no more bulk. You know, this is giving me, I think I've got a great idea for a new airline. Disca- d- discount airline staffed by Carlsberg employees. <laughs> and they're allowed to have like six drinks. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. The <laughs> pilot's auto- drinking. As long as the plane is on autopilot, yeah, you yeah, can invest, drink all it, you yeah, want. Yeah, invest heavily in really reliable <laughs> autopilots, you know, on really good padded wheels for a hard landing. Yeah, and lots of just, bathrooms. Yeah, <laughs> lots uh, of bathrooms, bathroom, exactly. Bathroom for every seat. <laughs> every other seat. Your is own a private bathroom. Basically, <laughs> basically, it's an apartment in the air. <laughs> in, in, in every hand, a beer for every passenger. I think they a bathroom. Have those planes, they're called private jets, and they're out of my price range. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't Hooters have a plane for yes, a while? Hooters, Hooters, Hooters had a whole airline. Yeah. Actually, for, and, but I think it went out of business. Those were the days. Those were the days about five years ago <laughs> when <laughs> people were just spending money <laughs> like, <laughs> like it was the most free. ridiculous business plan. <laughs> somehow seemed viable. I know we'll have an airline. It's <laughs> a Muppet plane. <laughs> Tiger Woods was into it. <laughs> uh, we could tie we everything tie together. Back. We can't we can't bring the miners in because unfortunately that's um that's a tragedy. Funny. So let's not do that. Yeah. Screw that one up. <laughs> Killed that line of uh, conversation. Yeah, you always do. Anyway, find yourself a different airline if you don't want to pay baggage fees. That's what I say. That just about does it for this episode of the podcast. On behalf of myself, Morgan, Jared, and Emily, thanks so much for listening. If you would like to be a part of the RiskCast, just send us a message over at the Risk Management Monitor blog at riskmanagementmonitor.com, and we will be happy to read your comments on the air or follow any stories you think are worth a closer look. Be sure to check out this month's issue of Risk Management Magazine. Our cover story this month is a great feature by our own Emily Holbrook on how new regulatory proposals might be the key to delivering lasting financial reform. There are also features on corporate misconduct, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, nanotechnology, and supply chain risk, as well as the usual helping of news, insight, analysis, and commentary. If you are not a subscriber to the magazine, you can do so at www.rmmag.com. Or better yet, you can receive the magazine for free when you join RIMS, that's the Risk and Insurance Management Society. Membership information can be found at www.rims.org. But you can also find a wealth of other resources there, too, such as the ERM Center of Excellence, the RIMS Job Bank, the RIMS Benchmark Survey, and a ton of other great content. The RIMS 2010 Boston Conference is just around the corner and will go on from Sunday, April 25th through Thursday, April 29th. There are going to be dozens of speakers, hundreds of exhibitors, and thousands of attendees there in what will be the biggest risk management show in the world. Gary Loveman, head of Harris Entertainment, will be speaking as well as Rebecca Ryan, a consultant and expert on generational workplace issues, and Nassim Taleb, author of The Black Swan and the world's leading oracle when it comes to risk and risk management. You really do not want to miss RIMS 2010 Boston, so make sure you register today. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and stay tuned for the next episode of The RiskCast. In the meantime, I'll leave you with the words of General Douglas MacArthur, who said, There is no security on this earth, only opportunity. See you next time.